Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. My name is Cassie Fothergill, and uh, my husband Russ and I have lived in the Temple Belton area for about 20 years. Um, We have a daughter, Grace, who's a freshman in college, and our son, Sam, is a sophomore in high school. We um, have been really blessed by being members of TBC for about the last six years, and, and we hope maybe to stay for always in this community who knows where God will lead us, but that's been a, it's been a real big blessing to us. I also teach the Wednesday uh, study with Suzanne Steves, the New Song Widows Group, and so it's really neat to be um, amongst a different group of people who are studying the same thing. I love how our church has the women all working through the Gospel of Mark together, so um, it's been a blessing already to our group and I know to your groups as well. Um, Today, as we begin looking at Lesson 6, I want to um, just go ahead with the assumption that you've read the text on Mark chapter 4. I'd also like to um, maybe extend the challenge to reread it if it's been some time because of the crazy week that we've had, Um, but I'm going to press on with this like we were right where we should have been in Lesson 6. Today, I want to begin... with a little bit of a testimony to the work that God's done in my heart as I've studied and prepared this lesson in chapter 4. Some of it's embarrassing, but right, God calls us to these things to share and testify to his goodness. I I will tell you that the first time I read through chapter 4 and these parables together, that my heart was kind of prideful. I was in a really selfish sort of spot when I read them, and I thought to myself, wow, look at Jesus. He's such a good teacher. He's using these illustrations to help people understand, and I quickly made the jump to myself where I thought, oh, just like I'm a good teacher, just like that time I was teaching algebra, and and I had a really great metaphor for how the X and Y variables shouldn't be together, Um, but Luckily, God intervened with my kind of prideful thinking, and right about there at verse 10, you might be kind of in this same place, um, he stopped me in my tracks, because when we read verse 10 through 12 of Mark chapter 4, Jesus is starting to explain the parable of the sower to the disciples, and he says, um, he told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. I thought, did I read that correctly? Jesus said that he taught in parables so that some people wouldn't see and understand lest they be forgiven. So I even went to the original text in Isaiah. Yep, that's what it says there too. I was just stuck in this place of confusion. But luckily, God sent me on a quest to know more about the parables, which has led me to know more about his kingdom. Um, I was so confused that as I began reading and studying the parables and learning all these new things, I felt a lot like some of these memes you might have seen. Um, I don't know if you've seen any of these, but they say, I was today years old when... So there's a couple of examples. I was today years old when uh, the pasta spoon, right? You figured out the hole in the pasta spoon has a a serving size for one. Or the numbers on the toaster actually have 
minutes associated with them and not levels of toastiness. These are really cute memes, but I was feeling like that. The learning was so new for me. I was today years old when, here's another one, but this might be a little too soon. Last week, in one moment, I was today years old when I learned how to shut off the water at our house, right? So a little soon, but we're always learning new things. And I think sometimes, especially for those of us who've been believers for a while, we forget the newness that we um, and the vulnerability that we can have to learn something new in Scripture. So I know some, each of you have been on similar journeys, these places where God kind of tears down previous constructs that may be not correct and reassembled, maybe from the ground up, your understanding of Scripture. So that's where I want to begin today, giving thanks for God's ever-present work in our lives. So before we go on, let's, let's pause for a moment of prayer and then we'll get started. Thank you, God, for uh, the sanctifying work that you do in my life and in all of our lives. God, we, we give you all glory and praise for working through your spirit to reveal more of your divine mysteries to, a, to us every day. Thank you for the great love that you have for us, shown perfectly to us through Jesus. God, we bow before you today, asking again for you to reveal yourself to us to correct our misunderstandings, and to move in our lives in a way that causes us to be light in a dark world. Amen. So if you are somebody who likes to take notes and organize your notes, here's um, sort of the way that the outline will go today as we work through these things that I've prepared. Um, you can divide your paper into four sections any way you'd like. Some definitions. We're going to have three terms we look at together. Uh, three different kinds of literary devices, three precautions, and, of course, the three parables that um, are in our text for today. So if you want to begin to make your paper that way, it might help you as we move on. Looking first at a few key terms um, and definitions that I kind of learned to think about in a new way. As I just testified, all this confusion made me pretty vulnerable to learning truth. It softened my heart, pushed away my pride, maybe kind of crushed my pride, right? So that I could begin to see something that was hidden before. Confusion, which leads to revealed mysteries, it's kind of exactly the purpose of the parables. So let's look at the engagement that the parables can bring to a listener by looking at the word confusion. We see that right at first glance, parables invite confusion. That confusion causes the hearer to have to work, engage for understanding. And often, it causes the hearer to make a judgment on the people or those things in the story. And finally, in turn, to make a judgment on themselves. So this kind of progression through the initial confusion a reader might have or a hearer of a parable might have. And even at this kind of surface glance, parables really do invite confusion. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom of God is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. The hearer of the teaching is invited to engage in the thinking, to work through their understanding, and often the purpose to cause the listener to make a judgment on those in the story and themselves. The process itself is remarkable, although often painful to the hearer. 
Being vulnerable to the confusion provides a way for us to engage in Jesus' teaching about the mystery of his kingdom. So if we look to the next term, it is this mystery that we want to talk about. If we consider the word mystery, we see that the parables are to reveal to us the mystery of the kingdom of God. It's important that we understand the use of the word mystery. In English, we understand mysteries maybe as situations that are incomprehensible, beyond our understanding, or maybe even unknowable. We might consider mysteries as things that really smart, investigative humans can solve. That could lead us down a really wrong path if we think about the mystery of the kingdom of God in this way, that that we could just be smart enough to figure out the mystery on our own. Maybe some of you are married, or maybe you are the person that when you're watching a movie, an investigative movie or a whodunit kind of movie, you're sitting with the person who says, I knew it was that person. I knew it was him. And you feel the pride, right? If that's happened to you, you feel the pride of being able to figure it out. And that's not exactly at all what the mystery of the kingdom of God is like. So I want us to think more correctly about these divine mysteries. The Greek word that's used here in Mark chapter 4 is mysterion, and it doesn't mean mystery. It means a sacred secret, a secret in the sacred or spiritual realm that must be made known by God. We see the word secret in all three of the gospel accounts of the explanation of the parable of the sower. In Mark 4.11, Jesus says to his disciples, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. In the same account in Matthew 13.10, it says the knowledge of the secrets of God have been given to you. In the Luke account in chapter 8, verse 10, the wording is similar, but if we look in the King James Version, it says, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. So if we're going to think correctly about the mystery of the kingdom of God, we should think about it as the sacred secret of the kingdom of God. And if the purposes are of the parables themselves are to reveal the sacred secret, what is it that makes it sacred? Our earlier definition says that a sacred secret is one that must be made known by God, and in the case of the parables, made known by Jesus. In essence, God is in complete control of revealing the mysteries to all of the people on the earth and to each one of us as individuals across all time. So here's a really great place to anchor ourselves in the truth of the whole redemptive story of God. Our big picture view reminds us that God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit were all present at the creation of the world, that God formed covenants with his people to reveal himself to them, that Jesus, the word made flesh, came to reveal God's redemptive plan through his death, burial, and resurrection, and that while Jesus ushered in the kingdom of God here on earth, the fullness of the kingdom of God is yet to come. This truth reminds us that the full understanding of the parables, the sacred secret of the kingdom of God, will not happen until Jesus comes again. And that this is the secret to the kingdom of God that Jesus came to earth, fully divine and fully human, to make a way of salvation for all those Jew and Gentile alike who believe. We see in Ephesians chapter 3, this probably would be the most common place that I remember hearing the mystery of the kingdom of God. It says this in the first six verses. 
This is the reason that I, Paul, am a prisoner for Christ Jesus, for the sake of you, the Gentiles. For surely you've already heard of the commission of God's grace that was given me for you, and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I wrote above in a few words, reading of which will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. In former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind, and it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and sharers in the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. So considering these meanings and definitions and the process of confusion began to change the way I was reading the parables altogether. I was leaving behind this idea that Jesus was just simply good at using sermon illustrations and examples in his teaching, and I was starting to realize the, the amazing power in being vulnerable to the teaching of the parables. So let's continue to grow our understanding of the parables by comparing um, a parable to a couple other literary devices. Sometimes we do a good job at that when, we, when we're trying to say what something is by saying what some of the other things, what it is not by saying what the other things are. The three that we'll look at today, of course, those of you English people in the room will know there are many literary devices, but the three that we're going to look at today um, are metaphor, allegory, and parable. There's no real hard and fast qualifications that make a parable but if we look at all these together, we'll know that parables were used even long before Jesus' time, mostly by philosophers and politicians of the day. But even non-Christians agree that Jesus was the most brilliant author to have ever used the genre. So let's make a few distinctions between three of these. Keep in mind, these are all fluid and interchangeable. No hard and fast uh, definitions needed. When we think about a metaphor, um, we're thinking about something that's a direct comparison between two things, usually this two-layer comparison. It's often a little bit shorter um, and a little more direct. I learned um, a fancy preacher word in my study, so similitude, the fancy preacher term for metaphor in the Bible. And one of those examples you can find, um, you'll remember this story in Luke 15, it says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, and sweep the house, and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin for which I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So even in that part of the text, an example of a metaphor or a similitude, we see that um, we even have the last sentence of the text to tell us how the comparison relates to us. We look at a second type of literary device. Sometimes we think of allegory. Um, for sure, these two examples, right? The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, The Wizard of Oz. An allegory is a story, a poem, or a picture used to reveal a hidden meaning or a message. They're usually much longer, complete stories. Allegories use characters and events to convey a meaning. They don't just come right out and say it. You probably remember this as a child. You had no idea that when you were reading these things or watching The Wizard of Oz that that's what you were seeing. The symbols represent a consistent image throughout. There are lots of um, 
allegorical parts to the parables, especially if you read the parables across, like if you read several of them, the seed has consistent meaning, the sower has consistent meaning. So there are some allegorical parts to it, but if just for the purpose of today to distinguish it from parables, we'll kind of think of it as the bigger story. When we look at a parable, it's also this implied comparison. It's not always as obvious as a metaphor, but a little more obvious sometimes than an allegory. Um, a little longer than a metaphor, but a little shorter than a full allegory. Has a developed storyline. The purpose of the parable is to move the hearer to a decision or action, and I think that's the distinction here for us. Um, we are compelled to judge ourselves in the end and act differently once we've heard it. This indirect way of confronting, um, we'll remember as we look even to an Old Testament example. I have there on your slide those two kind of Greek roots, para meaning alongside and balo to throw or cast. So when you think about the clear definition of a parable, a story intentionally placed alongside a teaching to help us understand its meaning. So just because this is what we studied last semester, I thought it was a good example of a parable. I know the text is small, but um, I'll read to you so that you can kind of remember this, and maybe with these new definitions and terms on your brain, think a little more about what happened in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. It says, The Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him, and he said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor, the rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of its own, his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man, who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. So do you see right there, right? He's going to judge the characters first. And then luckily we have Nathan. He said, well, David goes on to say he must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. But then we have God's servant Nathan to be there to say that last and final part of the parable, you are the man. And we do see change in David's life when he realizes this. The parable that Nathan brought to him did cause him to repent and change, even though we know that there are many events in David's life that um, he stumbled one of my favorite quotes about parables in this whole study that I've done on chapter 4 comes from the author named Warren Wearsby. Um, I think that he most eloquently defines what a parable is, and this is what he says. A parable begins innocently as a picture that arrests our attention and arouses our interest. But as we study the picture, it becomes a mirror in which we suddenly see ourselves. If we continue to look by faith, the mirror becomes a window through which we see God and his truth. How we respond to that truth will determine what further truth God will teach us. 
Once I read that in my study, it, things began to change. I began to um, maybe see the error in my ways a little more clearly and how I should use a few cautions, maybe for myself, maybe some of these apply to you, when approaching parables. There's three of these, and the first one um, is to remember the big story. Remember to think about the bigger message of Jesus. This is how he was delivering these uh, teachings, right? He was revealing the kingdom of God day by day, and the people were hearing often his teachings on how he was the king. Um, he is the Christ. He is the word made flesh. He is the long-awaited king, the ruler of the kingdom of God. Just as he was the mediator of creation, he is the mediator of our redemption. He is the sacred secret. Parables were not designed to reveal their complete meanings all at once. Um, you'll see, again, Paul kind of making this reference when he's writing to um, the Christians in Laodicea. There it is. So look in Colossians 2, uh, verses 2 and 3. He writes, I want their hearts to be encouraged and united in love so that they may have all the riches of assured understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery. That is, Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So by approaching the parables as the revealing of the sacred secret of Jesus Christ, I think that keeps us um, from maybe overanalyzing or sticking too much on a detail. Definitely happened to me. I think another great thing to remember is that we should be prepared for changing encounters in the parables. If you've had a lapse of time over this last week and you were prepared for Lesson 6 and you're just now rereading some of the texts from Mark 4, be prepared that even today, that as you read, that you might have a different encounter with that story and parable. There are going to be times where maybe you see the broad meaning and times where you see maybe a single meaning, meaning time where you're, um, if we're thinking about the parable of the sower, there's times when you're the rocky path and maybe times when you're the good soil, maybe times when you're the fruitful tree and times when you're cut off, right? Just depending on the situations in our lives, right? Times when maybe you're seeing the full gospel revealed, but maybe times when you're struggling to just read a verse, we have to know, and I loved this assurance that God gave me because, you know, you kind of feel like when you have something wrong, you kind of feel condemned and, and worried and a little bit down on yourself. But I really felt the assurance of God saying, I'm faithful to these things, Cassie. I'm faithful. Of course, I'm not going to let you carry on in the misunderstanding. Of course, I'm not going to let you think about that. And I just felt the comfort and love of God when he was reassuring me that he's going to be faithful to correct our misunderstanding. Of course, this reminds me of the text of the verse in Hebrews 4 about the word of God and the treasure that it is to all of us. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So be ready for it to do that in your life, especially as we study this section of text. The third caution that I bring to you is maybe to be careful to not overanalyze. Um, I think that, especially when we're doing a study and we have that green book that has questions that we're answering, I think that maybe the, the temptation is to be a little bit intellectual. I'm getting the right answer, or I'm writing this down, or I finally figured out what this represents. Um, 
I think in a way you can approach with humility, Jesus' teaching should be approached with humility and with confidence in the sovereignty of God. If our hearts are too proud, right, like mine, we could be blind to the teaching. If we try to create big allegory or symbolism on our own, we could miss truth. And even worse, we could even distort that truth and cause others to miss the teaching. By believing in the divinity of Scripture and by believing in God as the one who makes all things known through his Spirit, we believe that the Word of God can stand on its own, able to reach the hearts of all mankind just in the hearing of it. It doesn't require intellectualism or interpretation. In fact, remember that the Gospels were read aloud. People were converted to follow Christ just by listening to the Gospel being read aloud. So the same is true for us. We don't want to make it too complex. This is a great verse in Psalm 119, 130. It says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. So these cautions remind us to bring our whole hearts to the reading of God's word. We're reminded to surrender pride, puffed up intellect, maybe personal narratives. Each time we read God's word, whether we find a reading of scripture that encourages us or corrects us, we should give glory to God who reveals his love for us in his word. So again, I'm assuming that we've, you've read the pair, these verses, the three parables in um, lesson six in the fourth chapter of Mark. Um, but just a few maybe final comments on those before we uh, move on and finish today. I guess One of the big questions that I haven't addressed yet is why did Jesus even teach in parables? It's certainly something we wonder about. Like, why did he not just explain it more fully? Like, what was he really after? His disciples wondered that too. In fact, they even asked him. And when Jesus replies in those verses 10 through 12 that I read to you earlier, his reply suggests that the parables were used to do both things, to reveal the truth and to hide it. Um, Again, Warren Wearsby has this quote about that. He says, The crowd was not the judge of the parables. The parables judged the crowd. Jesus' parables can simultaneously do both. They can condemn the prideful listener and, and save the sincere listener, all at the same time with one reading. In fact, Jesus placed a lot of importance on um, the hearing of the word of God. We, we see the word here 13 times to hear, 13 times in um, chapter 4. In our book commentary, in your green book, our commentary author says, um, to truly hear requires that the listener be attentive and open and sincerely desire to comprehend the truth being revealed. We know that God cares much more about our motives than our actions. The how and the why matter a lot to God. And in the same way, a distinction is to be made between just the physical hearing and the sincere, surrendered hearing that comes um, with a true heart. Looking at the three... Oops, wrong button. That's my fault. There we go. Um... Looking at these three, the parable of the sower, the lamp under the basket, and the mustard seed, um, I think you, hopefully you've had some time to discuss these with your groups. Um, but it, in case you haven't, it would be a good time to, to stop, reread. But just as a recap, let's talk about the three. The sower and the soils. One thing I find kind of interesting about the parable of the sower is that um, 
You can go and sit, and maybe you remember sermons that were given to you on this section of text in Mark, and um, maybe the title of that preacher's sermon was the parable of the soils. Maybe um, it was the parable of the sower. Maybe it was anything. Like They often even have different names because there are so many approaches to the same text. It's important because Jesus actually says right here that it's essential that the disciples understand this parable. In fact, it's one of the few recorded times that he explains the parable to them. He tells them they must understand this one if they're going to understand any of the others. It's a way to help the disciples know about the way that the kingdom of God is to grow on the earth. Jesus knew that large crowds of people would not all become Christ followers. He was aware that the hearing and the teaching of these parables would even cause the religious leaders in the crowd to grow in their hatred of him. We think about the lamp under the basket. We know that we're remembering that followers of Jesus are called to shed God's light and reveal his truth. We can't give out what we haven't taken in. We must be aware of what we hear and how we hear it. And the health of our spiritual hearing is the thing that determines how much of God we're going to have ready to share with others when we're called to. And finally, we look at the mustard seed in summary, the parable of the mustard seed. Isn't it great to think? Maybe we're approaching spring. Maybe you're anticipating flowers and gardens coming to life. And, and even as much science as we have about it, there is a mystery to the seed. And especially to a seed as small as a mustard seed. And I love thinking about how Jesus is encouraging his disciples um, in this and causing all of us to marvel at how the kingdom of God is to be spread. When I begin to see the bigger, uh, more complete picture of the parables, I found myself often left even without words. Um, I think Russ would say, like, what are you doing? Because I was doing nothing but, like, staring into space. And um, I would go on walks and think, you know, this is just marvelous. How marvelous. I remember thinking over and over again um, about the word to marvel. I felt like that's what I was doing on the second look at the parables. It was a beautiful transition for me, a reflection of the work God had been doing in my heart, that to know that I went from complete confusion to this way to marvel um, his teaching in this way. So I want you to think about that too. I want you to think about what it is to marvel because um, I think this might be a really healthy approach to viewing and learning from the teachings this way, to look at something that we can't totally understand, but to still look at it with awe and wonder. Maybe when you think of marveling, you could think of um, like a physical feat, somebody who's super flexible or who can do some crazy skill. Um, maybe for you, marveling at creation is mountains or oceans or flowers or babies, <laughs> um, but it's even a greater sense that I would suggest to you that we can marvel at these teachings of Jesus. They're so simple and so deep at the same time that even on the hearing of them, an uneducated person can find eternal life, and a prideful person can be condemned. We can marvel at how the twelve became the 500, which became the, the 3,000 that has become millions of Christ followers. Here's the way that my brain went for marveling on some logical truths that I didn't really understand completely. 
to marvel at these truths that are more than our logical understanding will allow, we might have some really crazy questions and answers like this. Is the gospel for the Jew or for the Gentile? Yes to both, right? Are the parables for confusion or clarity? Yes to both. Is this a parable about the sower or is it about the seeds or is it about the soil? Well, yes to all. Is the other parable one about filling ourselves with the knowledge of Jesus or giving out the knowledge of Jesus in light? Well, yes, both things. And finally, like you're just left wondering, this is the big question for me sometimes, is how will our broken world ever really become the full kingdom of God? And we know that in all things, God says yes to this. Um, I have one more personal testimony to um, maybe a second approach to the parables for me happened a couple weeks ago. Um, I've been working a lot in a high school classroom, and... um, I was really kind of shaken one day when a student came to me and said, I think I might have had my Bible study books on the desk or something. And the student said, oh, Mrs. Fothergill, I didn't know you were a Christian. And of course, right? That like makes you just want to like, oh, no, why not? Why didn't you think that? And, but I didn't have to ask a question. The student followed up by saying, um, you're so nice to um, the people He said something else, but I'll tell you, like he was talking about people who have different sexuality or different gender identification. And so he just couldn't match those things together, that kindness to those people was associated with Christianity. And it hung on to me for a really long time that um, maybe the thing that I had fallen back on um, as a witness to God's word and um, to hopefully to spread the message of Jesus in the kingdom of God, I had fallen back kind of in a lazy way on just being kind and nice. And maybe it's this certain situation that I'm in in the school, or maybe you'll see some things about this um, in your everyday life, but I kind of think I might be getting to the spot where, or we all maybe, where the world is out nicing us and the, the moralism that's happening um, outside of Christianity um, is attractive to people. And so I was really convicted when I was reading the parable of the light again to think that it's not just enough to share God's light, to be kind and to be nice. I was convicted with this message of I need to be ready to help kids understand, people understand, people understand my belief in the faith of of God as a good God who sent Jesus for our salvation. And how am I going to explain those things? Um, a similar comment's happened to my son, Sam, actually. He's had people say, oh, you're nice to those people. They just assume then he's not Christian because he's kind to people um, maybe that aren't following a Christian path. So, like, that's something we've been discussing in my house a lot. That was kind of a reflection that I took away from um, the parable of the lamp. Um, I don't have a lot of time for this, so if you want more information, you can ask me. But... uh, the same thought of how am I reaching the kids in my classroom? I don't know if you know what anime is. I didn't either, but God called me to a place that I was the, the leader of the anime club at the high school. And um, in order to reach those kids, and this is all filled with incorrect or false images of good and evil, um, some of it wildly inappropriate, some of it harmless, but another day, conversation for another day, that, but that this is where they were seeking out truth about good and evil, and how was I going to interject and witness to those children? How could I share even just a glimpse of the real truth of God's goodness 
Um, and it was by learning about these, about these shows. So again, just some testimony about the way that God's been working in my life um, over the last few weeks and, and months, I guess, at this point. Um, and so I encourage you to do that same thing as you are taking maybe a second look into the text, maybe as you're talking about it with your groups and your family. Um, be open to what the parables have to teach all of us. I, I guess I'll leave you with this application that I encourage you to press into God's word, to recognize its power to help you reach the lost in every kind of situation and submit with your whole heart to its correction. In Philippians 1.6, it says, I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So have faith in God's faithfulness to you in your sanctification, in our correction through the parables and all the teachings of his word. And so with that, let's, let's conclude. I'll pray for us one more time, and then we can be finished. God, we, we thank you for loving us so completely. We confess that our sins often have made us into rocky or crowded soil. Um, God, we long to be fruitful again for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Before I, I do leave all the way, I'm going to get to that last slide real quick. Um, I wanted to tell you the two uh, texts that, or show you the two texts that I learned a lot from in case you're interested still. Um, the Warren Wearsby uh, commentary is called Be Diligent, and it's the one for Mark, and that's where I found a lot of the quotes that were meaningful to me in my study. And also on the Gospel Coalition website, I had, there was kind of more academic teaching, but um, the teacher named Vern Poitras, he um, has a series that's accessible for free if you're really into um, listening to some more about the parables or the teachings in Mark, you can find that there. So I leave you with those two things and wish you blessings on your day.